Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29 of Peach Troops podcast, where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis. We're recording in early September, always the glory days of the NBA, early September. Uh, but we have a, a trade, a significant trade. It uh, affects a Hawks rival in the East. And, you know, I guess I would ask you just overall, what are your early impressions on the Donovan Mitchell trade? Yeah, the, the thing that came to mind for me first was watching Cleveland down the stretch last year and uh, Darius Garland really being, uh, you know, maybe the only real NBA-level ball handler and creator that they had. And, I mean, they play a, a heavy front court lineup with, we might say three, even three bigs at times, right? Um, yep. There, So they needed all the ball handling they could get at the two guard positions. And they got um, one of the best dribble drive guards in the league, a dynamic scorer. Um, you know, everybody on Twitter that I've seen is talking about the defensive fit issues and things like that. But, um, you know, they're good, really, really good defensively in most lineups at the three, the four, and the five. And now um, Darius Garland, to me, is uh, – I don't think it's widely recognized. He's an elite pick-and-roll guard. <laughs> um, and now you got a guy who could play off of him, Howard the Cavs choose to make that look, that can just attack – the scenes and we've talked about DeJounte Murray kind of playing off of Trey in that way. In my mind, Cleveland has a little bit of that same template going with uh, Garland being, uh, you know, the guy that should uh, carry a lot of the pick and roll uh, workload. And then Mitchell can kind of, kind of do his thing with the creases and the opportunities that create. So um, in terms of how it improves the roster, I think it's an interesting step for them. I think it will be interesting to see, a team that's so solid defensively in the front court and now possibly really dynamic in the back court, how you can kind of make that all work. Can you make that all work to what um, kind of what, what's the peak? Uh, what's the ceiling of that? Well, we, I think that makes for really interesting watching next season, um, but that's, that's setting the price aside, which I assume we'll kind of maybe get into that a little bit too. the trends of uh, teams willing to be willing to trade all their picks for uh, these guys that aren't what top 10 players in the league, which they, these, these packages used to be reserved for that. If, if even those guys surface this much draft capital, but from a Cleveland uh, perspective, I think it's interesting. I think it's going to make for interesting basketball watching um, up in Cleveland this year. Yeah. I, I think it was a lot to pay. And at the same time, i it's much more interesting to talk about the fit in Cleveland. I think than the opportunity cost, I think there are a reasonable number of, of parallels between the Hawks and Cavs. Now, you know, you, with the, the trades being similar, the packages being kind of similar, I, you know, the, you mentioned Cleveland not having much ball handling and, you know, the Hawks without Kevin Herter, you know, would have been kind of the same, you know, in the same boat. And now, you know, they've brought in, uh, a super secondary ball handler in, in DeJounte Murray, just like the Cavs did with, with Mitchell. Um, if if you look at Cleveland and you say, okay, Mitchell, Garland, uh, Mobley, Allen, at sort of the one, two, four, five positions, who is the best fit at the three on that roster and sort of, you know, 
playing around. Like if I, if I gave you sort of any non-superstar in the league that you could kind of plug in there at the three, you know, what, what would be a good fit for them? Like, well, what do they need out of that fifth position with an, an interesting mix of four parts beside them? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting to think, like, um, it, it, obviously, I think we're staying away from the obvious, like, great players in the league. That's yeah, yeah, take, right? take like, the all-stars and superstars right. off the table. Just, right. you know, your your regular NBA players, you know, what, what kind of player would fit there? And do they have anything closely approximating that? Yeah, I mean, I, I in a lineup like that, I would value versatility. I, th- I think you do want a little tertiary ball handling at the guy who's in the three, playing the three there. Or at least a little bit of uh, self creation. Um, you need a little, some offensive punch out of that guy. I think it's a little too easy to say, oh, you know, Garland and Mitchell will handle all of that. Uh, assuming like the Hawks, that there's probably going to be some staggering going on with those guys, and those guys are going to need some extra help there. So that that's there. And then mm-hmm. um, I think ideally you're going to have a guy who can defend guards to the team's point guards or the team's uh, best guard as as needed as well. Because I don't think either. Mitchell or Garland are kind of suited for that. So a guy who can kind of play guard defensively and be a supportive a player, good enough shooter, good enough uh, shot creator, um, kind of uh, not so much um, creating for the entire offense, but when the ball kind of rotates, there's there's enough punch there. I mean, I, I describe sort of Andre Hunter kind of um, role that he's, uh, we'll see if that continues in this season, but, you know, he's, kind of kind of been that kind of a guy i think about uh what tj warren was his best season two years ago before mm-hmm. these injuries right you know a guy like that that's to me is like a better a guy like that would be better optimized um than like harris Levert, who's on that roster and presumably will get you know a serious look to play a lot of minutes with those lineups i think i think Levert needs a little bit more um uh, ball possession than you'd like, kind of, kind of in this role. So, those right. are the guys. Those are the for guys sure. that kind of, kind of, kind of come to mind uh, for me. Um, I'm sure there are others. Like, I mean, you could kind of take a a guy like um, uh, like OG Anunoby if like that's probably getting a little oh. bit further than you know uh, what's probably realistic for a roster like that. But I think in that sure. in that range of Hunter, TJ Warren, those types are probably kind of what what comes to mind for me um there like if it like if the uh um if the suns were going to kind of shake out uh some of their wings maybe one of the guys that they have there cam johnson you know would be a guy that kind of fits nicely there has more shooting than ball handling for sure but has some defensive versatility some strength and things like that so those are the guys come to mind for me are there other guys that come to mind for you I mean, I think the the most important thing, like you said, is, uh, you know, you want somebody who can defend point guards uh, and then you take sort of the best mix of skills and options after that. So, you know, just looking at, at that roster, is is that something that Okoro can do? Like, can he guard point guards and does he take too much off the table with his with his other stuff? Or I, I'm, I don't know, like. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that was the plan coming. I know this was, wasn't the question you're answering me, asking me, but the answer here, I think that was the template. Like when he came in was that he could guard one through four as needed and probably have more value guarding, you know, towards the guard positions and things like that. The offense has been, uh, you know, really um, 
be an issue in that lineup. But that's been especially the case when there's been a lack of ball handling and a lack of pre right. So now that they have more of that, it makes me it does make me wonder is or Okoro going to find a more comfortable role for himself yeah. here, right? Less offensive demand uh, at that spot. And, and he's young. And, you know, I had Okoro second on my board in that draft class. And I really thought he showed enough um, at Auburn around what he could kind of do with some some shooting that, that looked like he might, it might be a, a developing skill and things like that. And his work ethic, you know, uh, kind of caused me to kind of buy into that he would, develop enough offensively and and I don't and I don't want to say that that's impossible now you know maybe he'll find this simplified role um to kind of be, be a good fit for him and maybe some confidence comes with that too so I I think they give that a shot um for sure and I think Levert is a guy who again not a perfect fit but he's a a guy you just kind of kind of trust to to do you know most of the veteran things that you need there so a couple of decent options there um uh, the funny thing is that I don't think average NBA fans know how much the Cavaliers organization loves Dean Wade. They love him. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean I'm, not, I'm not even, it's, it's just, I don't know. I wasn't, exp- I just, I think the reason I laugh is not, you just caught me off guard. Like I didn't, <laughs> I don't know. Love like, him. Yeah. Yeah. He's, they, they love him. And I, I mean, just, don't be surprised. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not saying like you should bank on this, but don't be surprised if he gets starts this year and for some stretch of the season or however that shakes out because they love him. They love his versatility, his utility, uh, and things like that. He's a better athlete than uh, in space than you'd think. And and you know, I have to say, I, I wrote his draft profile at Peace for Hoops when he was coming into that draft class, and he's he, the Cavs see him as something very different than what I saw, but. I'm just saying they're enamored with him. And I think that if, you know, if Coro's offensive game is as problematic as it's been, don't be shocked if Dean Wade gets more minutes than Isaac Coro this year. So it's, it's just going to yeah. be interesting to watch. It's just going to be interesting to watch there. I mean, that's, that's a totally realistic scenario. Yeah. I mean, I guess if, if I had to backtrack and say, you know, who's sort of the ideal, I, I, if it's allowed, I would say Dorian Finney-Smith, like somebody like that. Oh, like yeah. That, that, that you know, if you could put him next to Mobley and Allen, you'd you'd be in good shape defensively. You, you know, it, there are so many scenarios where I would say that like putting Garland next to Mitchell is disaster. But like, if you had to put a front court behind them, like I don't know. Like I, I thought that Mitchell going to the Knicks would you know would have caused some problems in a lot of scenarios because I don't think that the Knicks had that kind of defense, but the Cavs do. Like I don't. I don't know. I, I think that they can kind of cover their sins uh, with Mobley and Allen. Like this, this might work. But I, I could see Cleveland being a, a very strong team this season in the East. Yeah, they won. I think forty-four last year with a real issue with ball handling and secondary creation, and so they, they an injury, and then yeah, in, for sure injury too. And so, you know, I, I think they they might be the most fascinating team to watch. Uh, you know, I, you know, they're they're high on the list. You know, in terms of like, you know, and, and this is all things we talked about. Like, is how much how much is Donovan Mitchell going to buy into what they need from him? You know, he's never uh, and how and Garland, uh, you know, his personality. Considering that, not not always been what some might say, sort of an alpha guy, a guy who's going to kind of go out and 
want to be the guy. He's he's a guy who's a little bit more laid back than you know the super competitive personalities that you kind of see there. I've I've been so impressed with how he's uh, leaned into being a more aggressive player these last few seasons. So I, I don't view that as being a problem. But you throw Donovan Mitchell into the mix and kind of how he attacks the game you know, in his, in the way that he does, which is a little bit unique. And is Garland, is that going to cause Garland to back off a little bit? And and will that kind of impact um, the general, you know, uh, production, you know, that that they can kind of, kind of put together. So that, that's another wrinkle I think is going to be really interesting is, is do those guys embrace the opportunity to play together, play off one another's strengths? I think their strengths fit together really, really well. If they're not, uh, as long as Garland continues to be, um, an increasingly more aggressive player with the ball in the way that the Cavs will need him to be. And if Mitchell supports that, you know, uh, I don't, in terms of what was going on in Utah with him and Rudy and all that sort of stuff, who knows what, what the truth actually was, but it didn't seem good. I mean, those the, the, that noise was persistent enough or long enough that it seemed like there was something there, right? Yeah. We, you know, so I, that, that's another thing that's that's there too. But I have to give, um, you know, credit to, you know, um, uh, Coach Bickerstaff there has, I mean, that, that's been a team with great chemistry the last few years and guys that have really bought into their to their role. And um, and so, you know, if I'm a Cavs fan, I'm pretty excited about this. And, and even as someone who's uh, really kind of excited to see how it goes for them, I'm interested to watch it too because, you know, they get the talent of Mitchell. We talked about the gap say last year. That helps Phil. The front court defense is potentially as as maybe as good as it is in the league. You know, Jared Allen, I thought, should have really gotten more attention for defensive player of the year last year. Maybe he didn't mm-hmm. play enough games. I don't know. But that's what my opinion of him. So it's going to be interesting. And when you factor on that, that there was so much positive chemistry around this team last year, especially, and if that can help um, – you know, kind of gives some Mitchell a little bit uh, of a better chance to kind of buy into to contributing more to that chemistry lion. That that's going to be a really interesting and I think uh, intriguing team to watch this year. So um, I don't know if we want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of this trend of trading all your draft picks. Um, that's that, that could be a long conversation, but certainly that's if you look at the Gobert, the Murray, the Mitchell trade. Um, and then if we lump in there, the asks that were being reported around anything involving Durant, you know, same thing, right, uh, and stuff. So it is interesting to watch the league, the market shift towards teams being willing to kind of send all of their draft capital, if I could simplify it that way, for guys that aren't, uh, you know, necessarily you know, top 10 players in the league. You know, or in some cases, depending on what you think of Murray, top twenty, not maybe not top twenty players in the league, and um, and, and such. So that that's an interesting trend to me, and I think um, it's just something to keep an eye on to see if kind of if that's where the market kind of situates for a while, or if it you know sooner than later starts to kind of shift back towards a little bit more sanity potentially. Yeah. I- just backtrack a little bit. Like I, I concur with you entirely. Uh, I don't really have to rehash it because I wouldn't change much about what you said, but they do feel like a good vibes team in Cleveland with Garland, Mobley and Allen. Like you just, I don't know, but that's, that seems like the kind of core that would give 
Mitchell sort of a, a mental refresh or a mental reboot after leaving Utah. But um, I mean, how do you, it, there's certainly a trend, right? Like if you look at what the Hawks did, the Hawks kind of had to go first with the, with the Murray trade and people reacted like, wow, they gave up a lot. And we're seeing now with more and more trades subsequently that that's kind of the going rate. Like did, do you feel differently about the price that the Hawks paid for Murray given that we've seen more trades now and that that's kind of what has to go out when you want to do that? Yeah, I mean, not, I, I don't, it doesn't change how I feel, but I, I think I may be the outlier there. I, I think some people, I mean, I didn't have, I, I would say I didn't have a major issue with what the Hawks did. Um, and but that's mostly because I don't think I get too kind of, kind of, you know, wrapped around the axle on, on things like that. Anyway, I, I think what, you, know, I, you could you could tell me your thought on this in a second, but I think I wonder if part of what's going on is that more analytics are being brought into how teams look at what is what it should be the expected return on say six years of first round draft picks or whatever that number is, right? Three first round draft picks unprotected, two swaps, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, and to kind of look at. Um, truly from a data perspective and an analytics perspective, what is the median expected return or, you know, that we should expect and realizing it's going to take five, six, seven, eight years. If you bank, if you bake in the first one or two, three years of these draft picks, you know, kind of needing time in the league to kind of get established, you're, you're looking at kind of like, do we make a move right now to get a guy like Mitchell or Rudy or DeJounte um, or do we let this plan play out over what eight years potentially um, to kind of wait and see what the longer term return would be there? And I, I, I'm, my instinct tells me that some analytics stuff is showing up there that that tells teams like this is worth considering this price tag um, to go make this move because the realization of keeping all the draft picks is such an incremental. Uh, kind of um, return, you know, across uh, a period of time. And so I, my instinct is that that's what has maybe been the primary factor in the market shifting in the way that it has. Uh, But you could tell me if you think that's crazy or or if you think it makes a little bit of sense, but I I have to think that teams are studying from a data perspective, what they're actually giving up is sending out and realizing like, Oh, I, I, I think this, there's some logic to this. I think there's some logic to it, but I think it's more the flip side of like that the teams that are sending value out have realized that if what comes in is a bunch of lottery, let's, you know, to kind of generalize it, lottery protected first round picks, that it's just not worth it. Like I think they, they, you know, the analytics are probably pointing out that the value in those lottery protected picks you know, whether it's lottery protected, top 10 protected, top eight protected, you know, whatever, whatever it rounds out to be. But, you know, when you cut off the top end of, of that first round pick with, with, you know, burdensome protection, that that's really wiping away so much of the value of the picks. And, right. and they just, just, you know, it's easier to say no, knowing that that that, that asset has been uh, overvalued in recent years and probably isn't... Uh, yielding the kind of return that it gets in name uh 
in name value when you say first round pick, but you know, it's in parentheses top 10 protected they, that that cuts so much of the value out of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm intrigued by the trend of uh, the trend of swaps because it seems like, you know, you've got so many of these teams that are just about to bottom out saying, yeah, you know, give us uh, three first rounders, you know, we're going to hit the bottom. Oh yeah. And give us these pick swaps. It's like, the pick swaps are kind of meaningless because your team is not going to be that good, you know, two years from now, four years from now, when those swaps come due, like I suppose it could work out, but in all likelihood though, it seems like there are a lot of pick swaps changing hands uh, that are never going to actually be swaps because you're going to have a good team and a bad team. And uh, that bad team's never going to need that swap in position with the good team. Yeah, I would think that the thought process there is, hey, if we both end up in the lottery, however that might happen, that gives us two shot number one pick, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, you could miss, as we all know, you could miss the playoffs by one game. You could get into the play and you could be the seventh seed, get to the play and find yourself in the lottery and you find yourself winning the that's lottery. True. And so, you know, so you, you kind of, I think they're just seeing themselves, you know, if that's the way it comes out, we're doubling our chances of getting the number one pick or the top three pick or whatever it is, you know. Um, but I, that's that's my guess there. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's I think it's interesting. It's something to keep an eye on. And, and I don't I mean, who knows if the reporting from New York is is true. And, you know, and, and Woj seems to be uh, the one that I saw kind of most strongly kind of pushing uh, the Knicks message i presume to to say we want a top five protection on the picks that we offer to the jazz we're like no thanks you know um and if you look at what happened with all again the three big ones rudy Dejounte, and now and now mitchell no no pick protections it used to be that uh, it's kind of funny because danny ainge is in utah now and when he was in in boston he would at least like go like staggered like top five top three top one you know and have like some really narrow but basic protections in case they won the lottery or stuff like that and that seems like that's just completely out the window now for <clears throat> these deals that we've seen um and but again again it'll, we'll have to wait probably till next year this time to see if that's how another off scene is is gone like this or if it's if it's a little bit different next year uh, is it okay if we switch gears yeah of course uh tyson etienne Chris Silva, they've signed their exhibit 401k deals. 401k deals. <laughs> oh, wait, maybe that's not what they're called. Uh, is is there a realistic path for them? Or are we, are, you know, are we looking at, uh, you know, essentially camp deals and maybe they'll end up with College Park? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's likely that both end up in College Park. I, I think if you're their agents and if you're the players, I think what you're looking at is um, likely landing at College Park. And then if, um, say, Shondi Brown somehow gets a, somewhere across the season and gets bumped from the two-way up to a real contract, then can you slide up into that two-way, right, which is a more obviously right. a more valuable – um kind of kind of opportunity there um so um yeah i think i think brown is the only one they have on the two-way that's likely to 
kind of uh, have a shot at kind of a real contract uh, maybe at some point this season. But, you know, I mean, Silva is um, an interesting uh, guy to potentially kind of develop as maybe a guy who, if it, if the development goes really, really well, um, kind of defend a little bit in what the Akangu template might be. He's a, he's a smaller big man, but he has the speed and the, uh, you know, the agility and the mobility to kind of, um, you know, work uh, further up the floor defensively. You and I talked a lot about uh, how that's, that could be a difference between the way Akangu versus Capella is, is deployed. And we talked, you and I have also talked about how in College Park that they played small lineups like Tillman was, you know, they're the guy who spent most time at center for them last year. And he's, you know, we saw him in summer league for those who may not have seen any time at college park last year. We at least saw in summer league. And so Silva kind of slides into kind of that role too. He's not skilled in the way that uh, Tillman is. I mean, Tillman showed a lot of his, um, you know, finishing, you know, in, in Vegas and things like that. That's not there, but from a defensive standpoint, he kind of fits a, a more switch heavy scheme uh, a, a guy that can get out the perimeter, hand him, hand, handle himself further away from the rim, and things like that. So I, I think that's kind of interesting to see that that's the, where they've gone for potentially a little bit of organizational depth at that position. And you know, Etienne, I, I, I was just surprised at how well he operated in the pick and roll in, in Vegas, um, especially passing the basketball. He's a shot maker. Um, you know, he just kind of really uh, surprised me in terms of what his creation skills and things like that. He, obviously, he's you know, more on the undersized side, too. Um, but he's a pretty strong guy, you know, for uh, his lack of height and length and all that sort of stuff. He's a, he's a pretty strong guy. So, um, I, I, you know, I see something interesting enough in both of them to, to think that it makes sense that those are two guys you want to bring in at Camp Dills trying to build some organizational depth with what they have. And I, you know, I think when you and I did our Vegas uh, summer league kind of retrospective, I said, you know, I think it could be a guy who spends a couple of years in Europe and comes back and I was like, wow, you know, he becomes a real NBA player. Um, it sounds like he's going to uh, spend time in the, in the league this year. It seems like, you know, it's not for sure, of course. Um, and that, that might be a, a really good situation for him too. Um Especially since Sharif's kind of kind of go on, he might end up being starting the starting point guard in, in College Park this year. Yeah, it, it, it's it's an interesting trend that you know on the fringe of the roster, the Hawks have not Etienne, but with with Chris Silva, it's, it feels like another sort of defense first move. Yeah, agreed. You know, and they've, they've seems like they've prioritized that a little more. I wonder if it's like you know, part of the Landry Fields influence, uh, if, if that's, I don't know. It just, you know, it, it felt like so many of the older, you know, end of roster, roster moves were always these take a flyer on somebody who might be this undersized uh, proficient scorer type. But now now it seems like they're they're trying to deepen the defense Yeah, it will be interesting to see how differently College Park plays potentially this coming season, the last season, because I, you know, I felt like a lot of that five out was built around giving Jalen the opportunity to be a power forward creator initiator, which I think was smart from a developmental perspective. But like, if you look at Justin Tillman, like Justin Tillman is never going to be 
um, what a team needs defensively at the five and, and for an actual rotation center, right? Right. right. Um, you exactly. Know, right. So that, but Silva kind of gives you something uh, on defense to kind of build from a, some a foundational skill set and profile kind of build from there. And then, you know, I also recall on, on for Etienne, Nick Van Axel saying, you know, to the media in Vegas, like, like I told this guy that, you know, if he's going to find his way into the league, it's going to be a as a defender. You know, that's where it's going to come first for him. Um, and, uh, and, and that, that makes some sense to me because, you know, he, the offensive skill, that polish has a little way to go, um, you know, and things like that. But, um, you know, and, and then Axel threw out a few names of kind of undersized guards that have become, you know, I think he, he just kind of threw out like Patrick Beverly as an example, you know, out there. And I, th- I forget one or two other names of guys who really came out of nowhere to kind of develop themselves as, as kind of players that finally earned their way into some playing time through just being like absolute, you know, uh, effort impact guys on defense and and it's interesting to think because because Etienne has some offensive skill that I think is interesting too even though that he probably has kind of a, a long way to go to get that part of his game to being nearly NBA ready so yeah I, I find I, I find it intriguing uh there are times last I don't know number six seven eight years whatever we're looking at where the Hawks have brought some guys into camp there's like I don't really see the value kind of there apart from just getting a guy in who will practice hard you know uh which which is important too you yeah, know that's I mean, not that's not nothing but it's you know somebody like tillman like i mean i didn't you i couldn't see him like ever functioning in the nba like i think we mentioned like you know a poor man's like rashawn holmes like oh okay right. like that you know that's going to be hard to to make work on a successful nba team but like it's important to have those guys on a team like college park, because, you know, they kind of make things work, you know, for somebody like Jay Jalen Johnson to learn, like you just, you need some pieces and, you know, having a, having a veteran like that play center, having some offensive skill, doing some stuff sort of in the short role, like that, that's all helpful for someone like Jalen. So you, you just, it's like a piece, even though it, I don't think he had a viable path to the NBA. Like maybe Silva does if there are a couple injuries this season. Yeah. And and maybe it's a two, you know, two year, three year timeline for Silva to refine himself as a screener and a, a guy who's diving to the rim and putting pressure on the rim and things like that. You know, that's already like, this 26 there. like, or like in a week yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I still think he's a guy who, um, uh, is it's has has a more development ahead ahead of him, and sometimes big guys develop a little bit later, you know, in that in that way. So we'll right. we'll see. But it's good to call out that he's not you know twenty two. Yeah, um, and he's so, learned you know he learned basketball at an older age too. So right for sure. That's and fair. and he and he and he came out of the Heat organization, which um, if you're going to kind of pull uh, from an organization that really gets development right all up and down the organization, that's a that's a good good place to pull from, I think. So we, we've got like six minutes left before Zoom gets really, really angry and, and boots us and finds us and suspends us. Um, let me leave you with this one question. And since we talked about College Park a little bit, uh, how many games? I, I, if I'm like a Vegas odds maker and uh, I need this very abstract line, uh, how many games? What's the over under for how many games AJ Griffin plays in College Park this season? 
Um, what should the over under be? Yeah, I'd put it like eleven and a half. Eleven and a half. Yeah. So they they want to keep him around the parent club. Like, is is he going to get minutes for the Hawks? Like, he... I mean, I th- I think that comes down to health. I just I just think he's the kind of That's... guy because yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, that's another factor. Like, if if he had had, you know, if he was practicing now and if he had Vegas and, you know, months of successful practice behind the scenes, like, that would be a different thing. Like, he's he's going to be rusty by the time he, he gets there. And, you know, he's just barely turned 19, only has a little bit of college under his belt. Like, he's going to be kind of raw, I think. Yeah, I, I think so, too. But I, I, I might – the sense of what's different for him is that – Jalen had abbreviated since everywhere he played until he got to the NBA, right? Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, you know, AJ, his father is, you know, a prominent NBA assistant coach. He's been around the game. He's been in some of the stronger AAU programs uh, that are really kind of plugged in, have a lot of support from NBA kind of league presence. And so I just think he's kind of been in the environment through that, uh, from that aspect more so, and I think that's going to allow him to kind of pick things up a little bit more quickly than I would have expected Jalen to. And so I think he is more, I think he's better positioned to make the most of being plugged into the varsity team, if you will, being around that development, being around kind of those people where Jalen just really, really needed reps and needed low risk kind of, kind of reps to, to kind of really, and, and I mean, Jalen, we're talking about their ceilings, Jalen, could be uh, a much more dynamic player than AJ probably will ever be. If we're talking about like their uh, what 95th percentile outcomes or whatever. Right. Um, because Jalen is just an athlete. Uh, and and that's not to say AJ isn't, but Jalen is an like off the charts athlete. Right? right. The running, the jumping, the size, the, all that sort of stuff. And, and then he's shown some ball skill uh, kind of to the passing the ball handling, et cetera. I mean, he, AJ is a shooter, um, hopefully a guy that can defend a guy who can uh, create in kind of simple opportunities where Jalen, like if he hit on all the marks, he could, you could run your offense through him, <laughs> you right. know, potentially down the line. So I, that, I view it differently. I think, I think, I think um, AJ is going to have a more specific template that they're aiming for. And with Jalen was like, Hey, let's just open up the whole college park offense and just let him go do, you know, and let's see what he can do. Let's test drive him down there. And I think I think they feel like they know more about AJ at this point in time than they knew about Jalen. And I think that's why he's uh I expect him to not spend a ton and not a ton of time there. But that's that's my thought. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I, I'm definitely taking the over on that bet. Okay. But at the same time, I, I kind of agree with you in the sense that you know, Jalen needs the ball in his hands. And that's not going to happen next to Trey. Like you, you don't get to work that out at the NBA level when Trey Young's on your roster. So he had to go to College Park, and it's different for AJ. AJ's playing off the ball. You know he can be a complimentary player next to Trey, but he's I just he's going to need he's still going to need reps. They're not going to be learning reps. So he's just going to need reps. Like even if he's even if he's at a at a higher like level in terms of development and recognition and, and playing at high levels and being the coach's kid and kind of knowing the game better than Jalen. I still think he just needs the practice reps for the practice as, you know, this young adult who's trying to make a big leap to the NBA level. I think he's, 
he's going to need those reps in College Park. Uh, I don't think he's going to get enough time at uh, at the NBA level to kind of get his legs under him. I think they're going to they're going to have him let him have reps for reps' sake. They might not be learning reps, but just kind of literally just repetition reps to you know to get up to NBA speed after some missed time. Yeah, we'll we'll see. And and specifically like. For him, it might be more the defensive reps he needs, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so you know, we'll we'll see if the, if the Hawks feel like no, we can get him like all enough of that stuff through practice and all that sort of stuff here, or send him out. So we'll see. But my my instinct is just telling me I don't think he's going to spend a ton of time there. But um, we'll see. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. Zoom's getting angry. Got to go. And uh, <laughs> yeah. hopefully, you can do this again soon. Yeah. Take care, Kevin. Thanks for having me.